If you will, open with me to the book of 2 Peter, chapter 3. Second Peter, chapter 3. We are finishing up Second Peter this morning. Just a heads up, we'll start in the book of Psalms uh, next week, Lord willing. Uh, we'll be going through book one of the Psalms. And uh, as I like to go through Old Testament, New Testament, we'll probably do book one and then go back to the New Testament and then, and then revisit it. Um, but we'll probably do an overview of, of the whole book of Psalms uh, next week, some of the key themes throughout, and, uh, and then after that we'll, we'll dive in specifically to, to Psalm 1. But we are finishing up uh, 2 Peter uh, this morning. We're picking up in verse 14, and we begin our time together. I just want to read verse 14 down to the end of the book in verse 18. Peter writes here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, Knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's go to the Lord. Father, we are grateful that in your grace, you called us to be alive. We who were dead in our sins, in your grace, you sent your word to us, and you opened up our hearts to receive it. You gave us new life in Christ, and it was at the beginning of our walk with you, our relationship with Christ, but your word tells us that we are to continue on, that we are to grow, that we are to endure. And so I pray for our time this morning, specifically as we think of what your word teaches us about growing in grace, growing in knowledge of the Lord. How are we to obey these commands? What are we to do? We desire more than anything to be holy, to be just, to be without 
spot without blemish before you. And so help us this morning, we pray, to get a glimpse of some of the things your word teaches us. We might grow in our knowledge of Christ and in the grace we have received in him. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, we uh, have come this morning to the end of the book of 2 Peter. And in a very real sense, we are ending, or the letter is ending, where it really first begins. Um, Peter, throughout this letter, has had really one one main concern, one pressing matter, message that he wants to convey to these Christians that he's writing to. He wants them to endure. He wants them to grow. He wants them to last. He wants their faith, which is a genuine faith, to be strengthened, to be able to go through the fires of affliction and come out on the other side as pure gold. He wants them to be able to go to war, to defend the cause of the truth of the gospel against false teachers, against those who would distort and twist the gospel who would use even Paul's writings to justify a sinful life on the basis of grace. He does not want them to be deceived by these errors and as he says here, to lose their own stability. So he wants them to prepare to to go into battle and to defend the truth. In a word, as he says in the very beginning of the letter, he wants them to be all the more diligent to confirm their calling and election. This is what they are to strive after. This is what their efforts are to go into. And this basic message This charge is really how he ends the letter as well. He had stated on multiple occasions throughout this letter that he wanted to remind them of things. And here again, he is is reminding them. He is restating these original points from the beginning so that they will, at any moment, be able to call these things to mind. And here he wants to remind them again to be diligent. Verse 14, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And he ends the letter in verse 18, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Much of the Christian life requires this constant reminder. It is not as if we need some new revelation or we need some fresh word of God. 
The problem of the sinful heart is not that it has too little to work from, but that it has too little of a will to obey what has been revealed. We are, by nature, stubborn. We are hard-headed. Sanctification is often a very slow process because God, in His patience, is working to dig out all of the roots of sin that are within us. You can think of the sinful heart in in a certain sense, like a dilapidated house. It's run down. Man comes in to renovate it, and he finds that it's covered with cobwebs all over the place. And then he pulls out a broom, and he starts sweeping it away, and he gets up in the corners to remove all the webs in the corners. And then what do you find? You, you find that as you're sweeping all of this away, now you've got webs that are clinging to your arms. You have webs that are sticking to your head. It is just a, a constant that it's there. You have to remove the old furniture in this house. You have to demolish all of the wood that has rotted at its core and replace it with new wood. It is a whole renovation. And you know that the more walls that you remove, the more you find that there are more problems. There are things that you were unaware of. Now when you look into the structure of the home, you find even more problems. But God is a master builder, and He will take the time He needs, the time that He has determined to make us new. He will be patient in His work so that He can discover and fix all of the problems that reside in the house. And we can be grateful for that work. We can be grateful for His patience because all of His work, slow and methodical though it may seem, us, all of his work that he is doing within us by his grace is working in us salvation. He is cleaning us up, cleansing us so that we might be able to stand perfect and blameless before him. So our problem is, is not one of lacking what we need, what is Peter say in the beginning of the letter, he says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's given us everything that we need. Our problem is often a matter of reverting back to the familiar patterns of the old man and the life of sin. We need to constantly repent. We need to constantly put to death the deeds of the body, and we must never leave behind the fundamentals of the faith. The Christian life is to be one that is in a constant state of movement, in a certain sense, a constant state of progress, though there may be 
falls and there may be hills and valleys along the way, it is to be one where we are constantly moving forward. It's been said before, the Christian life is sort of like riding a bike. You've got to keep pedaling. You stop pedaling, what happens? The bike is just is going to fall. You have to keep moving forward. We have to progress. We have to grow. And this is Peter's final charge to Christians at the end of the letter. He tells these Christians he's writing to directly, and he's telling even Christians who would receive his letter as it makes its way around to other churches, like us, thousands of years later. You must grow. You must grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. So this morning, this, this is what I want us to consider together. I want to think about what it means and what it looks like to grow in grace, to grow in knowledge. We'll consider both of these exhortations here. We'll consider, first of all, what is involved in growing in grace, and, and then secondly, what is involved in growing in knowledge. And I've got three points I want to give to you about growing in grace that we'll draw from this passage. But before I, I give these to you, I want to briefly state what growing in grace does not mean. To grow in grace does not mean that God is withholding grace from us and that we must do certain things in order to merit and earn more grace from Him. God has given us all of His grace in Christ. Again, as we read earlier, He has granted to us all things for life and godliness. And this comes, of course, from His grace. You can think as well what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Ephesians chapter 1 where he speaks of God's grace being lavished upon us in wisdom and insight. He is not withholding any grace from his people. To say that we are to grow in the grace of our Lord is essentially a call to maturity, a call to bear fruit. God has planted us as young trees in rich soil. His grace fertilizes and nourishes the ground. His grace causes the sun to shine on us, to nourish us by the light of the sun. And of course, so that we are not scorched, sometimes he will remove that sun and give us some rest from the moon. His grace causes the rain to fall upon us that we might be watered. There is, in other words, a constant supply of grace from every single angle, feeding us through Christ. And the call to grow is a call to mature into a strong tree. Our branches must stretch out toward the light of the sun. Our roots must dig deeper into the soil and our leaves must bear fruit. 
we are maturing. And maturing in such a way that we will never boast of our own growth. The question is, again, how are we to do this? How are we to receive the waters of the rain and the warmth of the sun that is always there for us and to grow and to mature into this strong tree that bears much fruit? How do we grow in grace? Well, I have three points, again, that I want to show you from this text, three means of grace, means of of growth into grace. And the first is this. The first thing we do in order to grow in grace is that we must hope in his coming. We must have a hope that is fixed upon his coming. Would you look with me again at verse 14? Peter exhorts Christians to be diligent, to be found by God without spot, or blemish. That's the charge. That's our task. That's what we're striving towards. To be righteous. To be holy. To be blameless. But I want you to notice, especially, what he grounds this exhortation in. He says at the beginning of the verse, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these... Waiting for what? Verse 13. Waiting for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Or verse 12. Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. We looked at this last week, but the logic is clear. It's worth paying attention to again. The ultimate hope for the Christian is the final judgment and the new creation. That is our grand hope. That is what we are longing for, this final day of perfection and of righteousness and righteousness alone dwelling upon the earth as we who have been transformed by the grace of God are also dwelling in His presence forever. We are hoping ultimately in this new land to come. Our ultimate hope is not in the improvement of society. Our ultimate hope is not in cultural reform. Our ultimate hope is not even in revival in our day. These are all things, of course, that we might labor for, we might pray for, we might desire to see happen and work for, and indeed, these are things that Scripture even commands us to work for, but this is not our ultimate hope. This is not our end. Our ultimate hope is the new heavens and the new earth. And Peter has no shame at all in saying this. In fact, it is this very hope that grounds the pursuit of godliness and growing in grace. Notice the logic there again. Since, since we're waiting for these things, 
you be found like this. Since we're hoping in these things, you be godly. That's his connection. Sometimes people have a hard time grasping that fact. Isn't it the case? Isn't it the case that if we are so heavenly minded, we'll be of no earthly good at all? Actually, the, the opposite is the case. The one who is earthly minded is the one who is of no earthly good. We are called specifically to set our minds on the things above, not on the things of earth. Paul says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God in Colossians 3. And if we set our mind on those things above, where Christ is and on those things that are to come, if we set our minds on the kingdom of righteousness, on the kingdom of holiness and love and peace, then on earth, our lives will shine forth the brightness of that kingdom. If we do not look at the glory of the Son of Righteousness dwelling in the mountain of God, if we have no vision to walk up the mountain and dwell in the presence of the Most High, then when we come back down the mountain on earth to labor among the people of the world, our faces will not be shining with the glory of God as was the case with Moses. We will be just like everyone else, wrapped up in all of the concerns of the world. We must use the eyes of faith that God has given to us and hope in his promises that are to come. As the blessed man who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night, so must we meditate on the great hope that God has given us, this inheritance that is to come and that is now kept in heaven for us. And as we do this, as we long for the coming day of God, it will drive us and fuel us and motivate us all the more to grow ourselves. If we long for the kingdom to come, we will make our homes little kingdoms. If we long for the kingdom to come, we will strive to make our church a little foretaste of that kingdom to come, our lives, if we long for the kingdom, will have the aroma of the kingdom. And so to grow in grace, friends, means that we must have our eyes fixed, our hope fixed on the coming of God, that great day to come. We must have the end in mind. This morning in our membership class kind of talking about the whole doctrine of perseverance and one of the the illustrations that i'm fond of using i I like using it is you, you you think of the promise that god made to abraham isaac and jacob and of course their their offspring all of the 
the nation of Israel, that he would give them a land. The land of Canaan is yours. This is going to be the kingdom of God on earth. I've made a promise. This will come. It may be in 400 years, but this will come. This is what you're hoping for. This land in which you will dwell with me and I will dwell with you. And when they were going through the wilderness and finally get to the Jordan River so that they're going to cross over and to come into this promised land of Canaan, if they are simply thinking about their current circumstances and the trials of the wilderness or the past in Egypt and what they perceive to be a good life that they had then, and they're not fixed upon the promise of the promised land of which they are about to enter, that they will shriek back. They will not cross the border. They will not obey God and go in and take the land in accordance with his word. And in the same way, friends, we have been promised a land, promised a kingdom, promised an inheritance. And we cannot be fixated on everything that is taking place in the wilderness. We have to deal with the matters that are going on in the wilderness. We have to deal with all of the things that are present on earth, in the world, among us. But we have to be looking beyond the wilderness to the promised land to come. And as we do that, it will drive us all the more to godliness and faithfulness to the Lord. And so we grow in grace by hoping in the coming of God. Second, second way we grow in grace is that we must be done with sin. We must be done with sin. Now, I'm not saying here that we will reach a point in our lives before the coming of Christ where we will be altogether without sin. The New Testament knows nothing at all of sinless perfection here. John says, for example, in 1 John, if we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. And yet, he also says, chapter 2, that same letter, I am writing to you so that you may not sin. We have to acknowledge the reality that we have sinned, we do sin, but don't sin anymore. We will stumble, we will fall, and when we do, we are to confess our sins. And we are given a promise that he is just, he is faithful, he will forgive us of our sins, cleanse us of all unrighteousness. But in this very turning to God, when we do sin, we are saying something about our disposition to sin. When we repent, we are saying something about our relationship to sin. We are saying, in a very real sense, I'm done with it. I hate it. It has ruined me. It has ruined others. It has caused an offense to the very God whom I love. It is the reason why my Lord was crucified. When we repent, we are saying, I hate that sin and I want nothing to do with it anymore. And I will do whatever I need to 
go and sin no more. I will gouge out my eye if I need to. I will fight it. We are saying that we are going to make war against it. And this is an aspect of growing in grace. As we grow upwards towards heaven and Christ, we are growing further away from the curse of the ground. We are to flee from Sodom and never look back. Peter says that we are to be diligent, to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And you'll remember from last week that, that language of being found is a judicial term. Paul was found to be a plague by his fellow Jews. That, that was their assessment of him in court. He's causing too many problems. He's overturning the whole world, his Christian gospel. We can't take it anymore. He's blaspheming in our eyes. He's preaching nonsense. He's causing people to depart from the temple and to worship this man, Jesus of Nazareth. He's a plague in the world. Much better to be found plagued by men than a plague by God, right? Before the Lord, we are to be found without spot, without blemish. And so we must put away all of our sinful ways. Friends, if you are holding on to sin, if you have patterns of sin in your life, that are secret, that are destructive. Do not try to justify yourself with excuses and especially not with twisted interpretations of Scripture. You bring your sin to light and you cast it in the fire and watch it melt. Playing around with it for one more day will only bring a greater judgment upon you. There is no bush to hide in. There is nothing that is hidden from the eyes of the Lord. And if you are toying with sin and have yet to be disciplined by God for that sin, you should fear all the more. Because those who are without discipline are not children. And you should be all the more quick to repent. If you want to know true peace, and if you want to truly grow in the grace of Christ, you must hate your sin and flee from it. And when you flee from it, you flee to Christ. And when you flee to Him, you will receive forgiveness. Once you have received that forgiveness, your heart is cleansed, you obey his word. This is something that is vitally important for us to hear. This is not just a message that is for the world. 
The world has to repent. The world has to get rid of its sin and turn to Christ. We have spoken about this many times before, but I do not think I need to convince many people of how weak the church in the West is today. And that weakness is because it is plagued by sin. We cannot expect any changes in the world for the better to take place. If those who are called by the name of Christ themselves are unwilling to repent and are holding on to sin. And so it's those who call upon the name of the Lord, those who sing of the grace that is to be found in Christ for even the worst of sinners. We should be the first to repent, knowing that when we do, Christ will not cast us out, but he will receive us as the son was received, the prodigal son was received by his father. He will receive us, and there will be celebration. He will cleanse us, wash us new, there is not condemnation to be found now for those who turn from sin. But there will be condemnation if we hold on to it until the day of judgment. So we are to be done with it and to make our lives a life of obedience to Christ. Third, another means of growing in grace is considering the purposes of God's patience towards you. Peter says in verse 15, he says, count and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. This is very similar to what he had said in verse 9, when he said there, he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And as we saw last week, God's patience is purposeful. He wants you. He wants you to be saved. I just want you to let that sink in for a moment. This is God's desire. The God of the universe, the God of heaven and earth, the God you and I have rebelled against, the God you've provoked by your sin, he's patient with you. Why? Because he wants you. He wants you as his. He wants you righteous and blameless before him. That's his intention for his people. Who among us in this room deserves that grace? Who among us deserves be saved. Not a single one of us. We could measure our sins against each other. We could have a sin ranking competition. And we would all fall woefully short of the righteousness of God. None of us deserve to be saved. And yet when he sends Christ to us by his word, what he is saying is, I want you as mine. 
he said of you, as he said of me, you are mine, I have chosen you. As a bridegroom goes after the bride, he comes after his people. When you were clothed with filthy rags, when you were poor, when you were wretched, when you were like an outcast that men passed by and scorn and laugh at, God came to you. And he came to me. He sent his word. He sent his gospel forth. Maybe through preaching. Maybe through the reading of the word. Maybe through hearing it proclaimed. He sent his word to you, which itself is an act of grace. But then through his word, he he sent the power of his spirit. And he caused his word not to simply be words on a page, but to be life-giving words that create. The very one who made the creation in the beginning, who said, let light shine, has shown said, you're mine. The word comes to you, and through the word, I'm calling you out, and I'm making you mine. That is God's heart towards you in Christ. And he will be patient towards you, bearing with your sins, because your sins were born by his son on the cross of Calvary. How can God be patient with us? Well, he can because his son bore our sins. There is no judgment left for us. So of necessity, he is bearing patiently with us and doing so with the final intention and purpose of which he will accomplish to save us and make us righteous. Peter says, we are to consider this. This is the command. You think of commandments in the word. You oftentimes think of commandments as, as this is something I have to do. There's, there's, some, there's some work that I need to do. There's some kindness I need to show to someone. There's so, some prohibition I need to observe. Not do this. This is a command. It's a command that calls us to consider, to think on these things. Not all commands are commands to do something. Sometimes, sometimes God gives us commands that just tell us to bathe ourselves in the work that he's done. Sometimes you may consider the Love of your spouse. What an amazing wife I have. I cannot believe that she can bear patiently with so many of my sins. What an amazing husband I have. I cannot believe that he still loves me despite my sins. I do. I love you. <laughs> when we do that, you know, when, we, when we think about our loved ones like that, how they love us. It strengthens our own 
love for them. And here we are to consider the love and the patience and the saving grace of God. So as we consider and as our, our hearts are warmed by what he has and is doing for us, our affections for him are stirred. And we grow all the more up into his marvelous grace and the love for it and a desire all the more to do that which is pleasing in his eyes. So to grow in grace, we need to hope in his coming. We need to be done with sin. And we need to consider his patience, think over it, meditate on it. I want to look now in our remaining time at how we might grow in the knowledge of our Lord. And I have two points for you on this subject from the text. The first is an obvious one. We have to heed the scriptures. We have to give ourselves to the word of God. In verse 15, when Peter speaks here of the patience of God being for the salvation of his people, he, of course, intends his own words to be authoritative instruction and truth for the Christians that he's writing to. But you see here that he also links together his words with those of the Apostle Paul and Paul's writings, Paul's letters. Notice again in verse 15, Count the patience of our Lord as salvation. This is my instruction to you, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. I'm going to note three things here. First, Peter and Paul are unified in their message. There is not multiple streams of Christianity that are all speaking contrary things. The orthodox believers, the apostles of the Lord are unified. Those who are apostatizing, those who are departing from the faith are departing from the apostolic witness and testimony which is unified. Peter is saying that the patience of the Lord is for our salvation, and he says that this is also what Paul writes. There's no disagreement between them. Second, this is a consistent theme throughout many of Paul's letters. He says that Paul not only wrote to them of these very matters in one letter, but this is a consistent theme in all of his letters. He, he writes of these things in other letters as, as well. Now, this doesn't mean, of course, that he's always using the same exact language that Peter is using here, right? They don't have a, a dictionary that they're comparing and contrasting and making sure, hey, when I use this word for patience, you need to use this word for patience. It doesn't mean they're using the identical language. For example, Paul doesn't have to use the word for patience to be speaking about patience. Grace can communicate the very same idea. And certainly, all throughout his letters, we find the grace of God as that which leads to salvation. 
But just in, as an example where we do find very similar language between the two, one could think of Romans chapter 9, verses 22 and 23, where Paul says there, what if God, in the context of election, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So we looked at this a little bit last week. God's patience has multiple purposes. He bears with the wicked who will remain in their wickedness, and that patience serves as a greater condemnation against them. But his patience also directed towards his people will result ultimately in their glory. And as they see what God has done for them, unmerited, unearned, undeserved, in the light of what the wicked will receive, it causes the righteous all the more to praise him for his grace. Because were it not for his grace, they too, we too, would perish in our sins. Both Peter and Paul speak of God's grace and patience as having a saving purpose for his people. They're united. The third thing I want to note is the fact that Peter specifically identifies Paul's writing as Scripture. He goes on to say, there are some things in them, Paul's letters, that are hard to understand. Right? That's, that's always a a comforting verse to hear, right? You, you read through Paul's letters and, wow, I don't, really don't know what you're talking about here. This, this, is, a, <laughs> this is a phrase, you know, the, 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 the law of sin, the law of the mind. Paul, Romans 7, what are you doing here? Right? There are things that are hard to understand that require much diligent study and patient working through. Peter acknowledges that. It's a very human aspect of, of Peter, right? When I read some of Paul's letters, Peter's saying, I've, I've, I've come across some things and it's hard to understand. It's the problem. It's those things which then get twisted. So he goes on to say, there are some things in them that are hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction. And then notice, as they do the other or the rest of the scriptures. In other words, Peter is identifying Paul's letters as scripture. He is saying people twist other scriptures just like they twist Paul's letters, which are scriptures. Paul's letters comprise a portion of the whole canon of scripture. Point being, Peter, in these final words, is commending, of course, his own writings, but also the writings of Paul as Scripture to his Christian audience. And he's saying that when you read them, you will read the harmonious message between me and him and all of Scripture about the patience and grace of God. 
It is these written letters that were given not just to the original audience, but to all who would come after for the purpose of instructing us in the knowledge of Christ. In fact, all the letters of the New Testament were written with an initial audience in mind, but they were also, many of them, circular letters. So that one, once the original church receives it, reads it publicly before everyone, they make a copy of it and they send it to other churches. So that the church of the, the, the letter written to the Galatian church then gets sent to the Ephesian church and so on and so forth. So that we are all benefiting from the instructions of the apostles. For 2,000 years, this practice has continued. Copies of the scriptures are made and printed. Translations are made to put the word of God in the common language of people all over the world so that we can read it. So, So that's what we have to do. That's what we have to continue to do. We must continue in this long, ancient practice of reading the Holy Scriptures, and as we do, we will grow in the knowledge of our Lord. Much blood has been shed to preserve and to pass down these Scriptures to us. So woe be to us if we neglect them. These are the words of eternal life. And these are the words that show us Christ and grow us in a knowledge of him. Finally, another means of growing in the knowledge of the Lord actually comes through defending the scriptures. Defending them. Now, if you've ever taught something before, and I think many if not most of you here have, you will know that when you teach something, you really have to learn the material. There's a pressure there that requires you to know it to an even greater extent than maybe you would have if you were just reading and learning casually on your own. When When you teach things, you have to you have to have work through categories in your mind that you can communicate these truths to others with. There's a good kind of pressure that forces whatever subject it is into your mind. The same could be said about when you have to debate a subject, defend a subject. You must know the subject well so that you can not only teach it accurately, but defend it with reasons, with evidence. And something similar can be said when it comes to growing in the knowledge of the Lord and in scriptures. We've already seen throughout this letter that it is a promise, it is a guarantee that there will always be false teachers and there will always be those who reject the word of God and who mock it and there will be those who twist it. Peter mentions specifically in this passage the fact that unstable and ignorant persons were taking some of Paul's letters and twisting what he had said so that he was made to say the very opposite of what he had said. This will always be the case. 
This has been the case for the last 2,000 or so years. And as Christians, we must know the scriptures well enough so that we can not only benefit personally from them, but so that we can benefit others by them. We either have distorted views of the gospel and of scripture, or who have just outright rejected them. We need to know the scriptures well enough to be able to communicate them to others, and when they bring objections to us, we can give them an answer for the hope that's within us. If you had a Mormon, for example, if you had an opportunity to meet with a Mormon, they are a clear example of someone who twists Scripture. And if they said to you, you know, the Bible teaches that there's going to be a day of restoration, restoration of the church, and uh, Joseph Smith is the guy that brought this restoration to the church. Or, or if they say to you, as I've heard before as well, did you know that the Old Testament, the book of Ezekiel specifically, prophesies about a day that would come where the Book of Mormon would be revealed? Did you know that? If we're talking to someone and they bring these matters up to you, you may not have an answer to these very bizarre-sounding statements right at your fingertips, but you should be willing to engage, to engage these claims of truth with the actual truth. You could tell them, I've never heard this before. Tell me the scriptures that you are referring to that are backing up your claims, and I'll look at them. And then we can meet together, and we can discuss this matter even more. And then you could go home, or you could come to the church, speak with your pastor, speak with other members here. You could study the scriptures deeply with the goal of defending their truth claims and bearing witness to the truth for people who are lost. And even that very process, that process of having to think through objections and distortions of scripture, that process of reading scripture, for the purpose of defending the truth of the gospel, can sharpen your own mind, can clarify the gospel in your own mind, can clarify the hope that you have. There is a growth that you can experience as you read and as you study the scriptures as a matter of devotion and personal piety, and then there's also a growth that you can experience as you, in a sense, go to war with the world. Both of these are good. Both of these are approaches to Scripture that Christians throughout the New Testament are exhorted to prepare for and to do. So sometimes the Scriptures can be to us like a like a medicine. We're, we're, we're drinking it in, we're reading it, we're studying it. It's cleansing us of our sins, it's refreshing our souls as we're 
meditating on many of the wonderful truths of God. And sometimes the scriptures are a sword. And the sword has to be wielded. And the sword is wielded most especially when you are engaging false gospels or unbelief. It is a call, in other words, for us, in a very real sense, to be a little bit more evangelistic. To take the opportunities that God has given to us, whether it be with people we know, in our own family, our friends, people we work with, or just growing out. This sharpening aspect Defending the truth as it is proclaimed serves the purpose of benefiting our own souls. And it is a means by which we can grow in the knowledge of the Lord. So to grow the knowledge of the Lord, you need to read, you need to heed the scriptures, you need to defend the scriptures. You need to think the great hope and the promises of God and be done with sin. And as we do these things and foster habits where this is regularly taking place, it, it grows us into a mature tree so that over the course of many years of practice, we will indeed be able to stand in the presence of God, spotless and blameless because of his grace at work within us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do want to grow. We do not want to be stagnant. I am reminded of the warning we find in Hebrews 6, where the author there is rebuking many of the Christians for not being able to move beyond the elementary aspects of Christian truth. Many of them should have been, he says, teachers by now, and yet they were still drinking milk. We want to be a kind of people who are mature and who can eat solid food. And so we need to grow. We need your spirit, we need your word at work within us to grow us, but of that growth also requires obedience on our part. And so I pray for all of us that we would be in response to the great grace that you've given to us out of a love for your glory and the spread of your name, we would be obedient to your will. We would submit ourselves to your word and we would, we would tell sinners of your ways that as we do that, you would grow us more into the maturity of Christ, grow us closer together. We ask this all in Jesus' name.